welcome to the Primary Ride Home for Tuesday, July 2nd, 2019. I'm your host, Chris Higgins. Today, Sanders releases his Q2 fundraising numbers, highlights from Gabbard's appearance on Real Time with Bill Maher, and Warren's plan to secure federal elections. Here's what you missed today from the campaign trail. First up today, Senator Bernie Sanders released his campaign's Q2 fundraising numbers. Now, I covered fundraising in exhaustive detail yesterday, so I'm not going to repeat all the technicalities about why this release is early and what the dates are and all the rules and stuff. Go check out Monday's segment on Mayor Pete Buttigieg's numbers for all of that info if you're curious. Okay, so what did Sanders raise? Well, he brought in about $18 million in new donations. And on top of that, he transferred in another $6 million from other accounts. That's typically money from prior campaigns and stuff. So his total Q2 campaign influx will be around $24 million. Now, if we're comparing Sanders to Buttigieg here, the key thing to note there is that Buttigieg got around $24.8 million in Q2 from donors without any funding transfers from previous campaigns, or at least if there were funding transfers, we have not heard about them yet. So the Sanders raise from donations certainly looks a good bit lower. But Comparing the Sanders numbers to his own Q1, he brought in a very similar amount. In Q1, his haul was also roughly $18 million, excluding transfers from other accounts. And he led the pack in Q1, so that's not bad at all. In other probably good news, Sanders has a very low average contribution. His campaign says the average contribution was around $18 in Q2, which is way less than the number cited by Buttigieg, who brought in $47.42 per donation on average. That is more than 2.6 times the Sanders number. The Sanders campaign also said that 99.3% of contributions were $100 or less, and that 45% of Sanders donors were aged 39 and younger. This is definitely something Sanders can use because it implies that he has a broad base of donors who are also relatively young. That's part of what every candidate wants right now. Well, that and lots of cash on hand, but Sanders is likely in good shape there too. Also, the Sanders campaign said that it had received, quote, almost 200,000 individual donations, end quote, since the first debate day. Now, that statement is hard to make sense of because it refers to donations rather than the number of donors. A single donor can make a lot of individual donations over the course of a quarter or a campaign in general. We'll know more about the details of those numbers around the middle of the month when the FEC requires all that data to go public. All right, so what does this all mean? What is the takeaway? Well, overall, this is not amazing news for Sanders, but it is not bad news either. And without more data on these numbers and more data from other candidates, it's hard to say much more about it than that. I will caution you, you might see some doom and gloom headlines, but from what we know today, Sanders appears to be in good shape to head into Q3 and remain within the upper tier of candidates. So as far as we know right now, the net effect is that Sanders is still very much in this, he's got a healthy amount of money, and he's got some good demographic data on his side. On Friday, Representative Tulsi Gabbard appeared on Real Time with Bill Maher for a sit-down interview. Although it was only about eight minutes long, she managed to cover several key points about her positions and what differentiates her from the rest of this primary field. 
I want to play a few clips in this segment so you can hear more from Gabbard, who typically doesn't get a lot of time to speak in major media. In the Wednesday debate, for instance, Gabbard got just 6 minutes and 39 seconds, which is third from the bottom. So first up, Gabbard on her philosophy and how she sees it differing from that of many other candidates in this race. Let me set up the clip for just a moment. Before this, Marr had brought up the idea of providing health care for undocumented immigrants and how that could have a major political cost for the many, many candidates in this field who support it. Gabbard responded by pointing out that the media often covers controversy instead of issues because conflict generates more traffic, and she definitely has got a point there. Marr then suggested that many of the candidates were, in a sense, playing to people on Twitter, who he referred to as the 2%, and implied that Democratic Twitter chatter is relatively liberal. This gets at another argument that I happen to agree with, which is that Twitter, and social media in general, is not real life. It is occupied by people who are super engaged on very specific topics. Okay, so after Marr got done saying a curse word that I can't include in this show, here's a clip of what Gabbard had to say in response. This, this is really um, about leadership or the lack thereof. And we have too many politicians who, you know, put their finger up to the Twitter wind and see which way it's blowing right. and then respond or change their position or whatever the case may be, rather than actually leading, looking at these issues based on their merit, on their substance, saying, what is in the best interest of the American people? That, that's what I try to do. And, and honestly, people have a hard time figuring me out because I don't play those games. Right. I don't fit in those boxes that they set up. Right. I think that gets at part of what Gabbard's supporters find so frustrating about the media's coverage of her as a candidate. And yeah, I do understand the irony of me saying that as a member of the media myself currently trying to cover Gabbard as a candidate. But Gabbard is coming from a substantially different place than many other candidates when you look at the issues, and that doesn't get talked about very much. All right, so next clip, let's get into elections. And I want you to pay attention to what Gabbard says here, in part because some of this will come up again in the next segment of today's show. Listen in. We have to take seriously the security of our elections uh, because of the vulnerabilities that exist still now that really have the ability to undermine our democracy. Um, there's a hacking conference that's held every year in Las Vegas where I think a 14 or 15-year-old girl from Florida hacked into a replica of yep. Florida's election system in less than 15 minutes. There are too many states in this country who still don't use any type of paper ballot or have any paper record of the votes that are cast. So when you think about whether it's a foreign country or a rogue actor or a high school student who's going in with the intent of manipulating the outcome of the votes that we cast, that is the true danger to our democracy and to our elections. I've introduced legislation called the Securing America's Elections Act that would very simply solve that. Make sure that there's either a paper ballot or if you're using a machine, have a voter verified paper backup so that no matter what happens, no matter who tries to interfere in our elections, we have the ability to audit that and, and make sure that, wouldn't vote for it. that our, well, the problem is that whether it's Republicans in leadership or Democrats in leadership, they're talking about how much they care about the security of our elections, but they've failed to do anything about it. They've failed to pass my legislation or other people who've introduced similar pieces of legislation. It's, it's all talk. It's, it's not action. It's amazing to me how the Republicans can see a... a, a Okay, and last up, Gabbard's signature issue, which is her stance against interventionist wars. This next clip comes after Marr brought up the notion that President Trump is himself a non-interventionist. 
In other words, Trump says he's not keen to go start wars overseas. Marr essentially drew a parallel there between Trump and Gabbard. Now, of course, Gabbard is a veteran and has a lot to say about war in general, but also some thoughts about President Trump. So listen in. He talked a lot about that in his 2016 campaign. Uh, But through his administration and through his presidency, we've seen something very different. I think that's why a lot of folks who voted for him are, they feel very betrayed. Uh, Why? What wars has he got us into? You mentioned Iran. He says he doesn't want to go to war with Iran. But if you look at the actions that he and his administration have taken, and maybe he's not aware of it, maybe these guys are doing it on their own, John Bolton, Mike Pompeo, and others, but every single decision that they have made towards Iran is laying the groundwork for an eventual war. But we're not there yet, and he could have done it last week when they shot down the drone, and he said something which I think if Obama had said it, we would have liked, which was, hey, we don't know who who made that order. That's what Kennedy said in the Cuban Missile Crisis. Let's not be rash. If Trump really doesn't want to go to war with Iran, he's got to swallow his pride and get back into the Iran nuclear deal. Swallow his pride? That's not going to happen. No, because if if he doesn't, I mean, if he doesn't, John Bolton and Mike Pompeo and others, I mean, they have have literally laid the dynamite and lit the fuse. Now, that segment cuts off abruptly because Marr goes straight into a discussion of impeachment right in the middle of Gabbard's sentence. For the record, Gabbard says she's against impeachment because she doesn't believe it would succeed in removing Trump from office. She says she sees the upcoming election as a better means to that outcome. The Primary Ride Home is brought to you by Skillshare. Skillshare is an online learning community with thousands of classes covering all kinds of skills. Everything from animation to cooking to data science to finance, you name it. So whether you're picking up a project you've always wanted to finish and just need a little knowledge to get it done, or you're challenging yourself to learn something new, Skillshare has classes for you. Now, most of the work I do, including this podcast, uses skills I learned online. I didn't go to school for political podcasting, but that's That's where Skillshare comes in. So look, I run a small business with a staff of one, and I'm not super confident about the money part of it. I'm a freelancer. So I looked through Skillshare, and guess what I found? Bookkeeping for freelancers. Now that is a course that I need. The class took me just 38 minutes and covered everything you need to know to keep track of your business finances. Well, now I know. So join the millions of students already learning on Skillshare today with a special offer just for you. Get two free months. That's right, Skillshare is offering Primary Ride Home listeners two months of unlimited access to thousands of courses for free. To sign up, go to Skillshare.com PRH. Again, that is Skillshare.com PRH to start your two free months now. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. And last up today, let's talk about Senator Elizabeth Warren's proposal to secure federal elections and expand access to voting. 
Last week, Warren released what she calls, quote, my plan to strengthen our democracy, end quote. She starts by laying out the problem as she sees it. Here's the first paragraph, quote, elections are the foundation of our democracy. But in the United States, the greatest democracy in the world, our government treats voting like it's one of the least important things we do. We have around 8,000 election jurisdictions all doing their own thing. They are overstretched, under-resourced, and their technology is often laughably out of date. End quote. Warren then goes on to discuss the problems faced by local election workers. Quote, In the 2016 election, the Russian government tried to infiltrate at least 39 state election systems and at least one election equipment company. They tried to spearfish more than 100 local election officials' email accounts. They even successfully broke into several voter registration databases. End quote. And then Warren essentially says that all federal elections should be run by the federal government with implementation by the states. And that's where this gets interesting and controversial. Warren suggests giving voting machines, ballot design guidelines, and security services directly to states and requiring them to use those for federal elections. She also proposes federal standards for things like voter registration and redistricting and proposes to make Election Day a holiday. Then she suggests that, you know, it would be really cool if states would just go ahead and use that same system to run their state and local elections, and if they do, the federal government, under her plan, would just go ahead and pay for all of that. And then she writes this sentence, which is currently the top highlight on her Medium story laying out the plan. Quote, Where racist or corrupt politicians refuse to follow the law, the federal government will temporarily take over the administration of their federal elections to guarantee the fundamental right to vote. End quote. For fans of states' rights, this is a very troubling idea, although Warren does take pains to point out the distinction between federal and local elections. They are different, and federal law does treat them differently, even though states generally lump them together for practical reasons. It is deeply impractical to run two entirely separate sets of elections with different machinery and different rules and all that stuff. So Warren is basically offering a carrot and stick approach here. One of Warren's proposals is to create the Secure Democracy Administration, replacing the Election Assistance Commission, or EAC, which itself was established in 2002. The EAC has a complex history. Go check out the Wikipedia page for an overview of that. My reading of Warren's desire to replace the EAC is that she simply wants a functioning independent agency with appropriate funding to deal with elections at the federal level. It's pretty hard to argue with that. So anyway, here is a long section of the proposal that clarifies both that federal takeover thing and the state versus local voting issue in detail. Quote, Here's how it will work. The federal government will pay the entirety of a state's election administration costs as long as the state meets federal standards in its state and local elections and works to make voting more convenient. States will create state implementation plans describing how they will adhere to federal law and increase access to voting, e.g. location of polling places. The Secure Democracy Administration will review state implementation plans for compliance with federal law, election security protocols, potentially racially discriminatory impacts, and efforts to make voting more convenient. States that achieve high percentage voter turnout, including across racial, gender, and age groups, will be awarded additional bonus payments. 
All plans will be finalized well in advance of Election Day, and states will provide data on their election activities. If a state does not participate in the federal-state partnership, but a local jurisdiction within the state wishes to do so, the local jurisdiction can work with the federal government to create a local implementation plan, and it will get access to federal funds to cover its election administration costs. States can choose to follow their own rules for their state and local elections. But if they do, they won't receive new funding for administering state elections beyond election security measures, and they will still have to administer federal elections in accordance with federal law, including preclearance for any changes that might have a discriminatory impact under the Voting Rights Advancement Act. End quote. Okay, so that's that. Now, I truly wonder how state election officials will take this whole thing and whether the idea of a federal takeover of what has been a local process is going to be fodder for attack ads against Warren. I'm also pretty unclear on how high turnout numbers leading to bonus payments is going to work in the real world. Might that create a perverse incentive for election fraud to juice the stats? Now, the whole thing is about election security, so in theory that's not possible, but we all know that fraud is something that kind of can happen, especially when there's a financial stake involved. Reading here from a Huffington Post article by Kevin Robillard, quote, The proposals are likely to be met with resistance from local election officials, many of whom are wary of federal interference. Alongside the plan, Warren's campaign released a letter from six constitutional law professors noting the Constitution gives Congress the power to choose the times, places, and manner of federal elections. End quote. Okay, so what will this cost? Well, Warren addresses part of that at the very end of her Medium post, but she does not address the cost of adding a national holiday for Election Day. Now look, if you're a long-time listener, you know that I have covered this before probably four or five times. Here's the thing. How come nobody is estimating what that costs, even though so many candidates mention it and support it? This whole thing about making Election Day a national holiday has to cost something. So how come no one knows what it costs or even tries to estimate it? I find that a really strange and honestly weirdly consistent omission in all of these plans. Anyway, reading once more from Warren on cost and payment. Quote, Based on estimates of national election administration expenses, recent state efforts to upgrade their election systems, and assessments of the costs of new machines and audits, to cover these costs we would allocate around $20 billion over 10 years, which includes around $15 billion for election administration and around $5 billion for election security. This investment can be fully paid for with revenue generated from the ultra-millionaire tax. End quote. Well, that is it for one more episode of The Primary Ride Home. I have been your host, Chris Higgins. You can always find me on Twitter, at Chris Higgins. I've gotten a couple of good book recommendations from y'all after yesterday's request. Keep them coming. Though, you know, I do have that problem of a pile of books, and now ebooks that just gets bigger and makes me sort of sadder because I don't have time to read everything. But still, I think after this election is over, I might take a couple months off and just read. You know, that's my idea of a vacation. Turn everything off, go be somewhere in nature and bring a pile of books. One quick note on the way out the door today, you will see some polling beginning to trickle out after the debates last week. Now I will get to that stuff, but it could be a solid week or so before we see the best run polls actually coming back with useful results. All right, as always, thanks for listening and I will talk to y'all tomorrow. 